Hey guys, it's Tony. I'm here to talk to you about Awaken Conference. Now, Awaken is a young adult gathering in Charlotte, North Carolina from January 31st to February 2nd, 2020. And it's meant to help you recharge your spiritual life and connect with a community that you can grow your faith alongside. Now, this year's presenters include a killer lineup with Caleb Isley of Humans of Adventism and, of course, a friend of the podcast. He's been on a few episodes. Kim Cove, a licensed counselor, and Randy Ban, the creative producer at Nike World Headquarters. The keynotes will be brought by Ben Lundquist of the Rise and Lead podcast, uh, a good friend of mine and an amazing speaker. Trust me, guys, you will not want to miss out. And Absurdity will be there. So me and Becker, uh, you get, get to see us if you come out. Uh, would love to come and talk to you. We absolutely think that this is something you're going to want to come and see. Speaking of, if you enter the code Absurdity at awakennc.com, that's Absurdity, A-B-S-U-R-D-I-T-Y, at awakennc.com, you're going to get a 10% discount. We'd love to see you there. This is absolutely something that we support, and we think that Awaken is a part of the growing church movement that we want to see moving forward. Once again, if you enter code absurdity at awakennc.com, you'll get a 10% discount off the initial price. Love to see you guys there. Welcome to Absurdity with Ryan Becker. Hey guys, welcome back to Absurdity. I am here with a really good friend of mine. And prior to this week, I would have just said a friend of mine. But as of this week, he and I have uh, bonded because we are we're currently sitting at Carolina Conference Camp Meeting, which for my non-Adventist listeners basically means uh, that our denomination in the states of in, in the Carolinas, North and South Carolina, as opposed to East and West Carolina, we rent out Lake Junaluska outside of Asheville. North Carolina, and we rent it out for a week, and we come out here and we do meetings for adults, for youth, for young adults, all of it. We we invite speakers in, we go on trips, we take the youth whitewater rafting. Um, there's all, and I think early teens, so like that's like tweens, basically eleven to ten to um, basically thirteen, fourteen. They go tubing, like it, it's it's a great actual week of time that we get to spend together. He and I are rooming. And currently, I am sitting Cleopatra style on a lower bunk bed in a shoddy dorm room, and he's sitting cross-legged like he's in kindergarten attending assembly with a mic in his face. So his name is Henry Johnson. He's a great friend of mine. Henry, why don't you go ahead and um, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, where you're from, that kind of good stuff. Well, Ryan, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, Ryan introduced me to the podcast here actually several weeks ago, and I have been binge listening to everything. So it's kind of cool <laughs> that now I will get to turn around and, and be on it. It's kind of like a little hero worship, you know. Uh, but my name is Henry. As he said, I'm a pastor here in the Carolina Conference, and I'm currently pastoring in South Carolina instead of North Carolina here, and my background is a bit of what I like to call I was an Advabaptist, and what I mean by that is that my father was Southern Baptist, and my mother was Seventh-day Adventist, and I went to church twice a weekend, and by the time I hit high school, I like to say I was equally scared of hellfire and the judgment. I wasn't quite sure what to be terrified (laughs) of there, and I had quite a journey. I went off to Adventist uh, University 
school, and in that sense, not that that's the name of the institution, but our denomination runs. <laughs> Adventist University <laughs> exactly. School. <laughs> our, 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 our denomination runs post-secondary educational uh, institutions. I went up to Washington, D.C., uh, Maryland area, something that was called Columbia Union College at the time. It was now Washington Adventist University. I was not intending to go in ministry at all. I studied political science and music performance, and when I was there, I basically walked out on faith altogether. Not so much faith in the existence of God, but kind of my background had been that I figured there was all these denominations, and they all read the same book, and no one could agree on anything. And I had a lot of things going on in life, and I decided, well, God may exist, but there's just no way I can actually please him at all. And so because of that, I just said, well, if he's really a loving God, he'll, he'll be fine with me, and I have other things to worry about. And so I kind of checked out of faith. And that, that would last for a little while, thankfully not too long, uh, but it checked out until I reached a point in my life, uh, kind of a traumatic point in my life, where uh, uh, someone I was very close to, a fiancé I had had, had left me and ended up getting with my, at that time, best friend, and I'd lost a job. And that kind of sent me into a moment where everything was up for grabs, and I finally decided I needed answers for certain things in my life. And I did what my personality finds best to do, which is kind of research. And so I went out and bought a Quran and the writings of Buddha, and I got the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, which is like the Hindu scriptures, and I tried to get a Book of Mormon. That was a little more difficult because they didn't want to actually give me one. They had to deliver it, and I didn't want it delivered. And you can just go to the, the play. Yeah, well, not that Book of Mormon. I'm talking about the actual Book of Mormon and, and all of that. And I got an unabridged English dictionary and a five-star notebook, one of those little five-subject notebooks there. And I sat down and I said, I'm going to read all of these and see if I can't find truth, because truth should be true. My favorite class at, at university was philosophy. And one thing that always has stuck with me to this day from philosophy was the three tests of any truth claim. And that was truth should be based on empirical evidence. It should have a logical consistency among what it teaches. So you could have two different things that it teaches, but they better be you know, consistent with one mm-hmm. another. They shouldn't contradict each other. And the other thing is that truth will be relevant across all generations. So it can't have been true 400 years ago, but not now. And it can't be true now, but not 400 years later. So those kind of things I kind of took with me into that journey. And I studied... I've spent months, I read through everything, and I left the Bible for last because I didn't want to be biased because I figured that was my you know, Judeo-Christian upbringing, uh, would it be a bias there. So I read through all of it. To be fair, uh, Buddhism really spoke to me. If I had not finally read the Bible in its entirety and, and studied it the way that I did, probably <laughs> might not be talking to me because I'd be on the Buddhist end of the spectrum. It just really made a lot of sense to me. Uh, but after reading the Bible, I realized I felt like it was just one step removed um, from the actual problem. But I really resonate with a lot there. And uh, since this is absurdity, I can admit that, right? Yes, so, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, Buddhism really spoke to me in that sense. But I studied it all, and when I finally got to the Bible, I started in, in Genesis. I never actually read—believe it or not, I even had entered the ministry uh, to a certain extent. By that point, I was involved in the church, and I never actually read the Bible cover to cover for myself. It was always either what somebody told me or what somebody's Bible studies told me to flip through and look at. I never actually just looked at it. And so I said, I don't want any of those. I'm just going to read it. And so I started in Genesis 1-1 and just made notes. And if I hit something like, why did God drown the whole world? He's just crazy. you know. I'd write it and say, when am I going to find an answer? And I just started studying. And I remember by the time I finished the first testament, uh, what's commonly called the Old Testament, I came to a shocking conclusion. I said, you know what? I, I don't think God is who the world says he is. But even more than that, I don't think he's who religion says that he is. Mm. And, and that was kind of shocking to me, and then I hit the New Testament, and by the time I finished just the Gospels, I hadn't even finished the rest of it, by the time I finished John, John is my favorite Gospel, 
by the time I finished that, I added one more statement to that kind of set of core belief that was forming within me. I said, I don't think God is who the world says he is. In fact, I don't even think he's who religion says he is. He's who Jesus is. And that might sound like, well, duh, but for some reason, to me, that was the moment where faith crystallized. For It just made sense, you know. And, and from that point, I said, I, I, was, I was just really hooked on the Bible narrative that I, w- that I was reading. And by the time I finished the Bible, I just said, you know what? I, I, I just want to share what I'm learning because I felt kind of duped. And not, not, <laughs> no, I mean, literally, because yeah. I'd grown up in multiple denominations, and this was the first time I was seeing this. And that might just be me. I don't want to fault churches for that, per se. Just my life experience, that, that had not somehow gotten into the frontal lobe. And so at that point, I hit that, and I said, well, this is amazing. And I remember praying to God, and I said, I just want two things, God. I said, it's funny how we always make deals with God the moment stuff happens. Yep. Because I had a lot of unprogramming to do in my brain. And I said, I, I said God, first thing, if this is truly you, because it's kind of a side note, but if you ever notice, when you, when you grow up in more conservative traditions, and that could be in any faith group, you tend to have a tendency that, to believe that whenever something is like radically different than what you believed, you're apostatizing or you've been duped by the devil. Yeah. Right. And so I was kind of like, well, Lord, if this is really you and I'm not falling for some sort of false God or whatever, then then keep teaching me this. I need to get this into my skull. You need to hit this new picture of you really cemented in there. And second, give me something, anything to do uh, where I can share what I'm learning with other people. And I didn't realize when I prayed that that someone was going to turn around and uh, ask me to enter the full time ministry, uh, pastoral ministry in a professional capacity, and so there I go, and that's what I do now. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I really want to cap off that story with a really important life-altering moment that you've recently had. (laughs) You see, two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago on this show, I told everyone about um, putting on antiperspirant the night before. Well, Henry hadn't listened to that episode yet, and we were roommates and I looked at him, and every time I phrase this, I don't phrase it as a, oh, you didn't know this, so I'm going to tell you. I phrase it as a, I was dumb for not knowing this. So I tell him, I was like, did you know this? Because I didn't know this. And Henry's life was changed this week. I, I felt, again, duped. I spent three <laughs> decades of my life doing it the other way around. And, and uh, it's like, you know, the, the phrase, not to, to gross out your listeners, but our phrase the whole week's been, Pits are dry. That's right. It's, no matter it's been great. <laughs> no matter what terrible thing has happened to us this week, we've always <laughs> looked at each other and said, but our pits are dry. And that's what matters. Uh Henry, I and and you did say thank you for for having me on, but thank you for coming on. I'm really excited to talk about this. Um we've kind of dealt with this a little bit this week too. So why don't you kind of give us a short introduction to um what you approached me about, what you wanted to talk about on this episode. All right. Well, some of it's been what we've been experiencing here at, at a camp meeting setting at a huge religious gathering, and I know Absurdity likes to deal with these kinds of issues, and one thing that came up is, it's kind of something that gets under my skin a bit, is is Christian cre- you know cliches, and I know you've had some episodes dealing with that, but one of the biggest ones that bothers me, because it's it's a cliche that's actually used to base a lot of theology around, is the concept of the two terms sacred versus secular. Right, so this idea that you know a lot of theologies or a lot of sermons or a lot of everything will come around. They'll be like, "Well, listen, you need something sacred versus this secular thing over here, or the secular is is evil, or it's being used by Satan to you know come into the church and corrupt it or whatnot." And we need to really stick with the sacred. And these terms get thrown around a lot. And the first thing I notice is that people don't even know where they came from. 
And, you, you know, so, I mean, we, we just we just imbue meaning into them that we just have taken from someone else, from someone else, from some. We, we don't actually know the history of those terms, and they mean different things to different people. But I've noticed that no matter what side of the debate you fall on, secular versus sacred, we tend to use them in abusive ways and also in ways that, that kind of obscure the reality of what the Bible has to actually say about that kind of concept. So... I was like, hey, let's let's talk about that because that's getting in my crawl, and you know, maybe it'd be a blessing to people that have been thinking about that too. Yeah, I, you know, I secular versus sacred has always bothered me because, um, kind of for the same reason that the label, like the, the labeling Christian music as a genre, bothers me. Um, in that the lines are just not that clear when I look at those topics. Like there are things that are secular that are absolutely uh, sacredly influenced, and there are things that are sacred that are completely secularly influenced. And like the line just isn't as, you know, set in stone or, or, or as, as um, obvious in the sand, maybe, as, as we like to think it is. And, and yet it, it does tend to come from more conservative circles. I think there's a bigger kind of emphasis on it in more conservative circles. That doesn't necessarily mean that I think that conservatives are completely at fault in any way, shape, or form. That's just where I hear those terms thrown, alo- thrown around a lot more. But um, So I guess we should, at f- we should first, before we go any further, define what those words actually mean. So you might have a different definition for what sacred is and what secular is, and if you do, that's going to make the rest of this episode really difficult to listen. So we're going to give you our operating definition of this, um, and Henry, I'm going to invite you to, to to let me know how you would define this. And then you can go ahead and listen to the rest of this episode kind of with that definition in mind. Um, otherwise, the rest of it may not actually make sense. So, Henry, give us give us your definition for sacred versus secular. Well, well, first to do that, I have to really briefly say where the origin of those words, as best we know, kind of came up in religious thought. And to do that, it's interesting you mentioned Christian music as a genre because music actually had a big part to play in it though it wasn't the primary one. It really starts back way back in the 4th century, as best we can tell historically. And that's when Augustine of Hippo sought to refute the charge that the decline of the Roman Empire was due to its Christianization. Uh, so kind of, go figure, politics would come into play with this. And, and as no. he was, yeah, I know, no, no. No, that would ne- never happen. Ne- never would the church and politics have somehow entwined. And, no, and that would a, never happen. Not a disaster come no. out of it. So in his refutation, he, he was distinguishing between what he called the city of man and the city of God. And these weren't literal cities, obviously, but he was using them to symbolize what he called different manners in which people orient their lives. So he was saying that those who are after you know the crucifixion, uh, crucifixion of self and living towards God and the benefit of humanity, they were living in the city of God. And those who were living, obviously, for the exaltation of self and for their own benefit, they were in the city of Right of man, and what's interesting is that concept from the fourth century then spilled over into primarily uh, within a hundred years in the, the medieval era into music because this this mentality of what is your focus, what is your orientation, city of God, city of man, began to creep into a lot of theological discussion within the church, and so when you hit the medieval era, music was one of the easiest places that the laity, uh, the common church member, would have been exposed to these concepts, and they exposed it through the term secular versus sacred, and it was primarily, interestingly enough, because this is one of the big areas where these topics come up all the time, Mm -hmm. these words get used, of all things in music, because it was considered that sacred music was primarily that form 
uh, of the motet or, or, or the mass that was used for things pertaining to God and primarily in the church service, right? And so therefore the secular or that which was in the city of man, right, would be things that were being used instrumentally outside of your mass or primarily, interestingly enough, in the dancing realm. So secular became that which people did for kind of fun and it had nothing to do with the church service per se, and sacred became that which was used by the church for a specific point in the Mass. And those terms then took on kind of that meaning that sec- you know, that the sacred is of God and secular is anything that's outside of the church, right? And those terms then took on that meaning. So I know different people have different meanings for that, but you know, when I hear those terms nowadays, I have to, I have to take them from their historical root. And so sacred would be that which the church employs, and secular would be that which is not of the church. Mm-hmm. That, that's the really simple definition of it. Now, see, when I, think of, when I hear those words, now, Henry, you're a much more well-researched man than I am. Um, the only time I've ever given any sort of history was like 20 episodes or 30 episodes ago, and I did it one time. But um, I, when I hear those terms, and, and I'm no one outside of the church really uses those terms. Like, they're really used inside the church, from, from my experience, used inside the church as a reference point rather than outside the church as talked about. Um, the problem that I see with this is that secular is usually used in a threatening way. Mm-hmm. Right? So sacred is good, positive, uplifting, and secular is anything that is not those things or is a threat to those things. We can't let those secular influences or that secular music or, or secular X, Y, or Z come in and impact the sacred. They are, they are two completely different things. Right, and that actually goes with the, you know, that goes exactly with the historical meaning, the idea that it's within the church, and thus the church needs to be protected from that which is outside of it that could come and interfere with the workings of God. So really, your definition is probably a, a much more, I, I would say, it's put in a common vernacular much more than my kind of historical braininess right here on this point, but we, we can <laughs> we agree with that. You speak dumb, dumb. You <laughs> speak smart, smart. smart. <laughs> and we both cray-cray. So, you know, that's, that, that's how it works. So, yeah, I mean, if we wanted to find a common definition here, you know, the, the sacred is that uh, of God and within the community of faith, and the secular is that outside of the community of faith, the, the other, right? There's yeah. the haves and the have-nots kind of thing. The in, the out, in the club, out the club. Well, which is funny, you, you said something about how we can't let the secular invade the church, we can't let it take over or influence and interfere with God's work. Um, but it's a little bit too late for that, <laughs> in that there's secular stuff everywhere. Um, ev- everywhere we go, every, I mean, even, even the way we dress as pastors, right, wearing a suit and a tie, that's influenced by the business world. Like there's there's so much that is influenced from outside of 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 the sacred the traditional sacred things that then the church over time whether it was church culturally or church in leadership um, then identified and give it its stamp of a sacred approval basically um, and that usually happened it seems like when enough people adopted something that church leadership could not do anything to stop it. That's usually, I feel like, when things get adopted as sacred. Well, and again, from a historical perspective, the church has been used to this. It's when they've taken the majority and they've Christianized it or baptized it to within the community and reappropriate it. So they basically say, okay, well, there's enough people. No, well, now this is Christian. 
Yeah. Right. And so therefore now this has transferred realms into the sacred versus the secular. Which is which is sad to me because when I look at the, when I look at what Christianity does, when I look at Christianity and all its all of its different forms, whether denominationally or or actual like literal, literally cultural, um, you know, across cultures, I don't see Christianity as something that operates, um, within the limitations of culture. I see it as something that is above culture. I don't see it as counterculture. It countercultural. I see Christianity and follow Christ as as superseding it or above culture. In other words the reason that it's able to be adapted into so many different cultures is because it doesn't operate within cultural limitations. It literally goes over them and is able to be flexible within, within cultural expressions. Well, well, this kind of brings up the topic of culture, because here's another term that gets, that gets thrown around a lot with that. And the thing is, I mean, to be fair, like what you're saying, our world is filled with culture. Yeah, you, absolutely. You, you, can't, you can't escape that, okay, because people are driven to create. And, and from a spiritual standpoint, people are driven to create because we're made in God's image, and he by nature is creative. I mean, that's how the entire Bible begins, with a creative act, right? I mean, so, so we by nature are creative people. If you leave people long, long enough, you know, hand them sticks, stones, whatever, no, no, matter your, no matter your reference point for human development, whether from an evolutionary standpoint or from a creation standpoint— Humanity admits that creativity is going on. There's the development of culture. If you leave humans along, uh, alone long enough, culture is the natural result, right? So, so culture by its nature isn't the problem, and, and I would be so far as to incline to say I think one of the things about Christianity is not so much that it's apart from culture, but that it's, at its best it is creating culture. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely—yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in fact, and you know, back to something earlier I had said to get, you know, to not sound too harsh against the church, uh, you know, this idea that the medieval church was reappropriating things. Well, God himself was the ultimate reappropriator of culture. Because this one of the central symbolisms of Christianity is a quote-unquote secular icon of torture. Right? God literally comes in and reappropriates the lethal injection table. Yeah, or the electric chair. Or the electric or... chair. Or whatever else, right? I mean, you know, because to us in the Western mindset, we, we when we think of crucifixion, we think about, oh, this is so, you know, although to be fair, I don't know if you realize, crucifixion is still a legal form of punishment in one country on this planet. It's actually in Iran. Iran <laughs> actually still on the legal books has crucifixion as a, a punishment they can give for capital punishment. Uh, but, you know, to us, we think, oh, crucifixion, this is absolutely so horrible. Well, to the Romans, they were at their height crucifying almost 500 people a day across the empire. I'm not talking about Christian persecutions. I'm just talking in general. In Jesus' day, before there are quote-unquote Christians, I mean, you know, I mean, crucifixion was as common as lethal injection is in Texas, okay? You just don't bat your eyes at it at all. Mm. So, you know, so God comes in, and here's this symbol that has a very secular quote-unquote meaning and and understanding, and he reappropriates it to the point where now, I mean, there are jewelry companies making millions off of cross necklaces and earrings, and whatever, and the Romans would be laughing at us like that'd be like me walking around with the electric chair in some sort of pennant, you know. I feel like <laughs> I feel like if, if I feel like if I was a government official seeing that, I'd feel like I failed, right? Like, like <laughs> it's no longer a deterrent. Yeah, exactly. It's just like they're wearing this proudly as an icon. What in the world? What is wrong with these people? Quick, find something else. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, so the church just, in one sense, learned from God, reappropriating, but I don't think they understood why he was and, and what its effectiveness was or what it wasn't. 
and and maybe our you know I think our discussion is going to move that way. But my argument for this today is we, we've defined some terms, but what I want to get to is a belief that I think scripturally there is no distinction between secular and sacred as far as an intrinsic distinction, but an imposed distinction. Yeah. Distinction. In other words, secular and sacred has less to do with the intrinsic value or use of something as far as uh, to agree with Augustine way back from the 4th century, if I can, not that he's alive for me to really know if that's where his thoughts were going. I, I, w- I would like to believe it's motive. Th- these terms started because of motive, and I think we've misappropriated that. It's moved from motive to reality. And that's two different definitions that will give you two radically different understandings of how to relate with culture. Yeah. Well, and my problem with with sacred versus secular is it forces us, it limits, it stifles creativity by forcing us to choose one camp or the other. Um, and I think, I honestly, I you know, I don't, this is more than just about music. This is about art in general. This is about the way we do business. This, I mean, this is like literally any facet of your life. Um, there's someone that would say there's this that's divided by this, this, the sacred and um, secular line. But I, I see this the most with Christian musicians who don't want to be labeled as, who, who get stuck because the second they call themselves the, themselves a, a Christian artist, they're pigeonholed there forever, and they can't get. And if they get out, they're 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 screwed. Uh, one example, the easiest example I can think of is is a post hardcore band called Underoath. Underoath was founded, I think, in in the early two thousands, and they um, they founded themselves as a Christian band. They were known on tour. They didn't drink. They didn't do anything like like they didn't sleep with girls. They they did not participate in any of that. And they would always be asked, like, is that really how you guys act? That kind of thing. And their albums explicit, overtly Christian lyrics. But in 2009, they actually decided they were going to stop being a Christian band. And they, they still, they just made music the way they wanted to make it. And a lot of it still was Christian influenced. But, well, they just, they broke up, they got back together, they released a new album this year in 2018. And it's the first time in their entire, like, 20 year history almost that. They they dropped the, the f bomb first time they've sworn in a song. Remember, they haven't identified as a Christian band for n- nine years. This is the first time that they've dropped the f word, and everyone blew up. Like all the Christians, are like how dare you? This is you know you guys used to be so good for my faith, and now that's it. Like one curse word, and they were out. They were pigeonholed into something even when they stopped identifying it or as it themselves. Um, and so it limits us. It stifles creativity when we get pigeonholed into these things, and it, and um, and when we pigeonhole ourselves in them. And so I think creativity is truly fostered when we do what you're saying. And 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 I agree with this argument. This is not why I brought you on, but I definitely agree with it. Um, and that th- those lines are 100. That line is 100 percent imposed. Yeah. Like. I don't see intrinsically that something is secular or sacred. Well, and this kind of comes back to how people relate to culture uh, and the production of culture. Because really, there's four primary ways that hum- humans relate to the production of culture. One is to consume it, which, is, by the way, is the largest category of how people relate to culture. If we're honest with ourselves, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm picking on myself. I either have the suit or I have the iPhone or I have the, the specific model of car or whatever nuts like that. I didn't create these things. I didn't create them at all. I'm consuming them. Somebody else has used their creative gifts, uh, something in Silicon Valley or something over in Germany or, or, or someone wherever, or these music bands. We're not the ones producing the music. 
right? We're going out there and like, aha, I just love this, and we're consuming it. That's that, The vast majority of people are just running around consuming culture that other people have made, okay? Or an, another subset of that is people then copy culture. So in other words, something, you know, and this, it's kind of funny we say that because that's one of the ones that the church is, seems to, when this topic comes up, be most fearful about. Oh, you're copying them. You know, somebody else creates it, and then what happens is someone comes along and goes, hey, I like that, but I could probably do that better, right? Or I want to do the same thing, but with my own spin, right? And, and we see that in the music world and et cetera. Different people are, they have styles that are similar or whatever not, you know, that bands break apart, but yet you listen to their music and they're almost the exact same thing. It's just the other one wanted to be the lead singer, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, and so you, you'll copy it. But then there's two other ways that humans tend to relate to culture. And the other two are they'll either critique it Right, so you haven't created it, and you've been probably consuming it, or if you haven't been consuming it, you've been trying to copy it. You'll turn around and then critique it. Well, I could have done better, or like like you were just saying with that. Well, they shouldn't have used the f bomb, or whatever. You know, uh, they you've done nothing to produce culture whatsoever, but you stay on the sidelines and you're like, well, that was dumb, or that was good, or that was amazing. We critique it. You know, I mean, that that's what social media almost seems to be anymore—the realm in which we just critique things that we had nothing to do with. And then finally, we condemn it, right? So we just go, that is garbage. That, yeah, we reject it. That should never have been here to start with. And, and one of the things that saddens me, especially as, as a minister, is that the modern church is more often known for the critiquing and the condemning part and, and, and spends the rest of their time fighting over whether they should consume or copy. And none of those four are what the Bible talk about as far as Christians and how they should relate to culture. Hmm. Huh. So then, so what you're then what you're implying then is that there's a fifth way. Would I? I would say there's actually a, a fifth and sixth that go hand in hand. Okay. Did I just like skip super far ahead? No, I, no, no, no. Okay, no, great. This is, this is going. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so because you're I, and the way you expressed it, I would never have expressed it that way because I'm just remember me dumb dumb you smart smart. Um, no, 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 no. So we're just I, different people. That's I just, um. I really love that, that idea that, yeah, we spent the most of our time critiquing or condemning, and then the rest of our time has been deciding whether we should consume it or copy it. Yes. And that's, that's so crazy, to, because either way, what you're describing is that we've spent all of our time talking about it. Yes. We've spent all of our time fighting about it and arguing about it and talking about it and not enough time actually interacting with it. Um, so, so, okay. So you said there's five and six. So what are five and six? Okay. Well, the first one is that scripturally, I, I do believe in my understanding of scripture that Christians have been called to cultivation. Cultivation. Now cultivation is totally different. That, that, that's a kind of agricultural term. This is where you get the idea where, you know, you're splicing genomes, you're trying to make a, a better, you know, fruit or a better vegetable or something else, or else you've planted something and you've got to get it to, to grow You've got to get it to become strong. You've got to bring it through to harvest. And so the idea is that the Christian is called to the cultivation of culture. In other words, I didn't create the seed, right? Or I didn't create the plant, but I can choose to influence its development, right? So so in other words, instead of sitting there and condemning and critiquing it or just outright copying it or just consuming it without any questions asked— um, to me, it's about cultivation, the idea of how can, right, because here, here's the thing, the only way you can deal with culture is to produce more of it, 
you can't actually eliminate culture. The only way something, to, for example, let's pick on, I was talking about the iPhone. Let's think about this. This has happened in our generation. I, I'm old enough, picking on myself, I can remember both the age of the pay phone and before there was a cell phone. Okay, I remember going and you, you had the phone, it was literally tethered to a wall. The coolest phones were the ones where you'd buy these huge like 19 foot extensions that yes. would plug into the wall unit so you could walk across the room and sit on the sofa <laughs> and have the phone. <laughs> yeah. Right? You, you yeah. can still have it. Right, so I, I remember those age. Well, guess what? Those are nowhere now. Okay, and it's not because someone stood up and said, you know, the phone connected to your kitchen wall is stupid, right? That, that's evil, or that's just, you know, hmm. useless. No, no one sat there, and, you know, th- that didn't disappear because people just kept copying them, or else we'd still have them. And no one changed it by just consuming it, because we all had them in our homes, okay? And definitely no one got rid of them by condemning them or critiquing them. What happened was that, you know, companies began coming along and wanting to cultivate the product. So the phone already exists, okay? They, did, they had nothing to do influencing its creation, no one was there with Alexander Graham Bell and all of this develop. Most of these people weren't here. What happened was there were people that had watched like Star Trek or things like this and had seen communicators. I'm really nerding out at this moment, right? They'd seen communicators, these handheld devices where people are talking, and they said, is there a way that we can take stuff like that? Again, they didn't create those ideas either. They said, could we splice that idea with the pre-existing phone idea mm. that we didn't create? Can, can we morph this? Can we cause this thing to evolve, for lack of a better term, into something else, right? And so you begin to have the idea of the cell phone, right? I I can remember my grandfather, he worked at a bank. He was pretty high up in in a bank. He'd started a community bank, in fact, so he was the president. And one of the perks he got... (laughs) Pretty high up. Yeah, pretty high (laughs) up. When, When One of the perks he had, I can remember this, is he had one of the first cell phones in town. And cell phones back then, when he first got it, was a huge shoulder bag that you carried that literally looked like you had a car battery in it. Right. And you, you had to carry it somewhere and literally unwind, like unzip the top and then flip out this phone that looked like, you know, the headset for a phone, a regular phone off your wall. And it's connected into this battery thing. And you had to run it almost, you know, run this huge antenna thing up the side and you had limited places you could dial and you had limited minutes because the battery just die on you. AT&T right. still runs that way in 2018, <laughs> just so you know. He's <laughs> yeah. describing yesterday with an AT&T phone. And I thought it was just Sprint I was talking about. But anyway, <laughs> so can you hear me now? <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, I mean, so there, there was that didn't take off. But what happened was that was an idea. And then someone else came along and was like, well, I want to cultivate that further. And we've gotten to the point now where, I mean... I can remember getting my first cell phone in high school, again, dating myself, and I didn't like it because it meant my parents could keep track of me. And it was this big mm. fat thing, right? With the flip phone. You flip it up. You weren't doing texting or anything. You had this little block, but that was miles ahead of what, you know, my grandfather had had when I was little. And then we've gotten to the point where we have smartphones, the iPhone. I mean, the iPhone came in and obliterated three different genres almost at once. It got rid of the, the phone. The MP3 right? player. The MP3 player. And, and and literally laptop computers. Yeah, it really did. You know, and, and as they've continued to evolve and cultivate the product, right? And by the way, that's one of the things that's happening now with Apple is that people think they've stopped learning how to cultivate. And so you're falling back into those categories where there's the blind Apple consumers or you have all these other companies, which is why Microsoft failed. They were just trying to copy it, mm. right? And, and they didn't have the same 
you know, understandings of yeah. what the phone was trying to do. They didn't, it, they didn't have the same product. Or then you had the people condemning it and critiquing it. Hmm. Right? You know, I mean, take, I mean, and you hear that in Christian circles even. You take a bite out of the apple just like Eve did in the garden, and you've, you failed to wear it, which don't even get me started on that, because if they really understood, the Bible doesn't identify the fruit. And the only place where we get the idea that Eve ate an apple was from Gnosticism, but that's a whole other historical <laughs> topic. Uh, part two. Yeah, part two for, for something else. But we're sticking with culture, the secular, and the sacred. And so the idea is that the only way you get rid of culture is by creating new culture. No one came in, obliterated the phone, and then went about creating the cell phone. They created the cell phone, and the cell phone obliterated the old culture of the phone because it just literally overtook it. It just, it, it consumed it, it swallowed it up. And so, and so the idea is if the church is really that concerned about culture, standing there condemning it and critiquing it, yet alone just copying it or, right, you know, just, just copying it or, or consuming it, that's not going to get rid of the culture that you're worried about. The only way we will change culture is if we produce more of a certain kind of culture than the one that exists. Yeah, and it's, and it's something that's seen as an alternative, a better alternative than the the, the current culture that exists. You know, I think I think the nuance with what, with even what you've described with the phone is that I think there is a certain element or a certain amount of critiquing that's involved in cultivation, but it's critiquing from the perspective of how can we be better. It's right. it's it's, it's not critiquing to condemn, it's not critiquing to say this is you know, I I don't like it for this reasons. It's how do we make society better in the case of the phone or how do we make this technology better? How do we capitalize on what's great about it and make improvements on it. Right. It does take critical thinking skills. I, I think another reason, if I, this is going to sound really bad, I think one of the reasons the church doesn't engage in cultivation a lot is because we like intellectual laziness. And to cultivate, just like a farmer can't just throw the seeds out in the field and hope it's going to produce a harvest, you ha- it, it takes effort. And we've reached a point, not just in Christianity, but in a Western society, that we're just plain lazy. And so anything that's going to require some sort of investment on our part, we don't like to engage in because cultivation takes key questions, not necessarily just, I'd like to say critical thinking, not criticism, right? So you you have to sit there and you have to ask, when I think cultivation, I think of a couple key questions that you have to ask when going about cultivating culture. One is what does X, you know, insert phone or music or whatever, what does blank or X assume about the way the world is? That's the first question I ask. So like when churches are like, I don't know what to do about this thing or that music or that invention or whatever, I go, okay, well, the first thing is what does that product or whatever assume about the way the world is? So what does it say? Does it say the world is all roses? Does it say that, you know, the world's going to blow up when a solar flare comes and wipes it out? And so nothing matters in life and value in society doesn't matter. You know, what does it say about the way the world currently is? And then more importantly is a follow-up question what does whatever this culture say or this item say about the way the world should be, right? So in other words, does it admit, okay, the world's gone to pot, but does it say the response to that is smoke more pot? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, like there's nothing you can do about it. The, world, the world's already going to burn up, so whatever, right? Let's just go and enjoy it while we can kind of thing. Or does it say, no, the world can be a better place? Right, not not to sound like every Bob Marley song out there, but right, you know, the world can be a better place. Needs to fill with love. We need to transform our world for the better, kind of thing. What is that? What they're after? More than that, I like to ask, what is this product or what is this piece of culture? What does it make possible? 
right? So, okay, now I have the cell phone. What make what you know? What does that make possible that I couldn't do before? Mm. Right, and that and that right. But along that, yeah. there's a couple more critical skills you have to do with that, which such as the question: What does it make impossible or more difficult? Right. So let, let's pick on something that's that's current to our age: social media, for a moment. I don't want to be one of those preachers that, you know, shows up and like, social media is bad, right? You know, but I, I think it's an easy one to kind of run through these questions kind of thing, right? So in other words, social media came around. Let's just pick on Facebook because that's in the news and everyone's picking on Facebook for lots of different reasons. And the idea is when Facebook, when, when social media kind of comes about and that, that these social communities, the question is, what does this culture say about the way the world is? Right, and again, we're doing guesswork. This is this is an you know an illustration, not a hard fact science. You go. There was a group of inventors that said our world is disconnected, right? And we need to facilitate connectivity, Mm. right? That's just very. I'm sure there was more reasons than that. I'm just keeping it really plain. Connectivity, okay? And what they thought about how the world should be is much more connected. We should have easier relationships and a much broader range of relationships, yeah. and it should be quick, right? So then the next question is, what did social media make possible? Well, it did make possible facilitating a, broad, a broader range of being able to connect with people and to have a lot more connections, okay? But then the flip question is, what does it make impossible or more difficult, right? One thing I found interesting, and this is just me personally, is that it's funny to me that our society is obsessed with connectivity, and so through social media, we've never lived in an age where we've been more connected in a sense of social interaction, but yet more disconnected as far as deep abiding relationships, right? I have 5,000 friends on Facebook, but because I'm so busy trying to maintain 5,000 basic connections, I don't even have five deep connections when it matters. Yeah. Right? And that's, and that's not necessarily, again, I don't want to be the one just critiquing, well, social media sucks. Okay, well, no, I, I think... I think it achieved what the culture creators were trying to do, right? But all, all culture spawns new things. So the question is, okay, it made this more impossible or more difficult. And so then here comes the final question I always ask when it comes to culture and cultivating. What does this new culture, what does this new item elicit in response as far as the new culture that's brought about, right? So, so what is the new culture that starts spanning out of whatever new piece of culture has been created? Mm. Right, so one of our new cultures now, you could say a lot of things got connected to social media. The selfie, <laughs> right? Um, this idea of product placement in real world events. So the idea, yeah. I mean, you know, or or the idea that my life has to be micromanaged like a highlight reel. Yeah. Right. So so the idea that we judge people's lives now by the way that they selectively show snippets of said life. Right. And we all do that. And I find myself even in ministry. I'm obsessed. Like, you know, I think about taking the photo with how many kids are in my class or what am I doing even here at camp meeting or how happy are people or what cool. Like, I didn't take pictures all during the week of the low moments or when I was having an annoying conversation with a colleague or something or a difficult conversation with a kid. I took pictures when we're whitewater rafting and it's cool and my life's awesome because I get to do cool things. Right. You know, it's created a culture of, of basically where we're selective and sharing reality. Yeah. Right. And I'm not trying to say whether that's good or bad, but this is part of cultivating. You have to be able to look at what's going on and use critical thinking skills, not just criticism, but critical thinking skills and go, why is it here? What does it say about the world? What does it say about how the world should be? What kind of culture is it creating? Right. And what is it making possible? 
or more impossible and more difficult. And especially from a Christian standpoint, and then in picking on Adventists, this is something that at times the key moments when Seventh-day Adventism or any Christian denomination has made a real impact in the world is when you've had people that took a lot of flack for asking those kinds of questions and trying to do cultivating instead of just consuming, copying, critiquing, or condemning. Yeah. I mean, some of the, it's funny to me, some of the most popular ministries in our church today are things on television and in radio. And if you look back to the founding of those ministries, people thought they were the Antichrist when it started because the TV was secular. The radio was secular. All you listened to on that was the baseball game, or all you Mm. watched on that was the, you know, late night and the Johnny Carson show or the Stooges or whatever else. And, and, And so, again, right, there were there was groups of religious people that I think understood that the Bible doesn't talk about, right, copying, consuming, condemning and critiquing. It talks about cultivating. And so they said, all right, what does the radio make possible? Does it make more difficult? They used critical thinking and said, okay, now, right, now we want to turn around and reappropriate it, like Christ did with yeah. the cross. Like he did with that. We want to reappropriate it to, and here it comes, the, uh, the sixth thing, to create new culture. Right? Yeah, that, that would be number absolutely. six. Not just cultivating, but it goes hand in hand, creating. Because the only way, as I said, to change culture is to produce more of it. Because it's interesting to me, God doesn't take us out of culture— because that would eliminate what he was after in Eden, the very beginning of the Bible narrative, is God puts them on the world, and you could say, well, God created everything. But he doesn't just throw them on the world. He puts them in a very specific place. He puts them in a garden, and it says they were there to cultivate. That's another reason I got the C. <laughs> yeah. To cultivate and to tend it, and to, you know, in popular Christian culture, we talk about naming the animals, even though that's not referenced in, in, in the narrative. But this idea is God wanted us to use creative abilities to keep adding to the creation, to keep actually doing something. If nothing else, the one part that I'm sure everybody loves about, or maybe doesn't, about God's creative act, he gave us procreation. Yeah, he he created two people. He didn't create a world full of people. Right, right. He expected us to fill the earth, right? That was one of his commands, to, 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 by nature, expand right, to, to grow, to have uniqueness, right? There wasn't just two humans that looked alike. Every, every human has similar features, but they're all different. We're creating new things to, to create beautiful, pleasurable, loving culture that tends towards life as he did, and he does, right? So this goes back to my point about this, this, this fake, we can kind of bring it back full circle because it goes together, this idea of secular and sacred. The question is, what are we what are we creating? What is its purpose, right? Are we cultivating and creating? Are we just sitting back and condemning, critiquing, copying, or consuming? Because if all we're doing is critiquing and condemning, we're no better than the quote-unquote secular people that just consume and copy. Yeah. Right? We're all in uh, the same boat. You know, I think going back to something you said earlier about cultivation, where you said, you know, we become lazily, you know, intellectually lazy— I agree with it, and I, you know, I think I would add, and I think this is a challenge. I, I, it's kind of a pitfall, but I also think it's a challenge to be overcome. In other words, I don't think it's an excuse for not. Um, I think it's a challenge to be overcome an obstacle, which is um, a largely Christian culture is based off of text from 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 plus years ago. In other words, we've stopped having instructional texts that create our culture. All of our culture comes from a source, or most of our culture comes from a source um, that um, that is old, 
and there's no new information coming out about this stuff that we didn't know before, unless it's like archaeological or something like 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 everything that's you can look in the commentaries, you can, everything that can be said about this book has kind of been said. There's not. It would surprise me. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I don't think that God would have allowed His church to exist for two thousand plus years, and then all of a sudden, two thousand years later, go. All right, so here's this new detail that all of you completely missed about who I am uh, for the entirety of two thousand years. Um, in other words, it's harder to cultivate when when the source and its completeness has already been given. Does that make sense? It, it kind of does. I, I I think I'm struggling to actually convey what I'm meaning here. Um, it's an obstacle to become to be overcome in that we do still need to be cultivating uh, culture, but we need to figure it out from principles rather than specifics. Well, and that's kind of where I was going to jump. I, I would argue that that the idea that the Bible somehow, everything there is to know about it is done, shows that, again, Christians, first and foremost, because this is supposedly our text, right, have misunderstood what the text actually is. The text is a living document. It's not yeah, dead. No, no, I agree with you right, 100%. But, right, and it goes to what you were saying. It's the idea of principles versus encyclopedia. Right? I think part of the problem where things have stagnated and we don't understand is because here's the thing. A, a dictionary is a dead document. Principles are living. Yeah. Right? In other words, principles, this goes back to where I was back in the beginning. My life's very big on this, this philosophical idea that truth is truth across generations. Well, for that to be the case, it has to be an eternal principle that then is obviously understood and adapted within the culture that's being created in that present time, right? If it's just a prescribed document, if this is a document that 2,000 years ago told you exactly everything to do, and that's when it was written and it was done, well, then it works for that culture, but it doesn't work for us now, except that it's principles. And principles, again, I think another reason why we don't, as Christians, we tend not to like the idea that the Bible, people get really resistant when I say, well, it's filled with principles, not directives, because they go, wow, oh, well, well, because we don't like the idea, because we're intellectually lazy. Yeah. Because again, it's easy if I can pick up an encyclopedia, flip it open and go, culture, C, subsection 2B, paragraph A, Christians shall only enjoy light rock and not heavy metal on Tuesdays and Thursdays and don't eat shellfish <laughs> on Wednesdays. Right, And you just close it, and you're like, I'm done, okay? A principle requires you to, again, use critical thinking skills, not criticism. You have to sit down and take time. And more so than that, I think this is where the church has really robbed itself of a lot of beauty and creative thought. Principles require you to have relationship because you're going to have to have dialogue with the principle giver. I'm actually going to have to say, this is, that's a whole nother, man, there's so many topics yeah, we yeah. could go off yep. of. This whole idea where the Holy Spirit is the deadest member of the Godhead in modern Christianity, where mm. we have relegated it to speaking in tongues in our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, and the rest of everybody else just says, well, it's the Holy Ghost, and it's dead, right? And I, I think both sides have totally lost that there's three members of the Godhead, and all of them are still alive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and there's something going on, and I, and I think... Right, for example, the Holy Spirit would come in a lot more handy when we understand the living word and the idea that we have to really engage with principles. Yeah. Right? You don't engage with an encyclopedia. I pull it off the shelf when I need it, I find the answer, it goes back up on the shelf and collects dust. Principles require relationship. It takes time. It takes thinking. It takes trial and error. That's a whole other thing we don't like. Huh. Can't, um, can't mess up. Yeah, yeah, don't mess up. So, you know, I think one of the most damning ways that we've done this, um, and I think this will kind of... this This will... I think give really a really clear idea of what what we're talking about here. One of the most damning ways in the church I think this has happened 
is the way we use money. The way we talk about how pastors can spend money, the way we talk about how members can spend money, and we say, you can't buy extravagant things. You can't own extravagant things. You shouldn't own extravagant things because you're wasting your money. Why do you need to spot, buy a $200 watch when you could buy a $15 watch you know, at, at Walmart or Target or something? And I find that interesting because we would rather... Because, because we say the love of money is the root of all evil, and, and, and we take these ideas from Scripture and we say, you know, it's easier for a rich man to enter through the eye of, pass through the eye of a needle than to enter heaven. We take those, we say it's not okay to have money, so it's not okay to be spending a lot of money on things and live extravagantly. And we've identified extravagance based off of a, of a, off of a dollar value instead of life principle, and so here's what we've done. We've said it's better that you spend $5 on something made with human slave labor then you spend $200 on something that was made with genuine care and with the rights of everyone honored and the rights of God's creation honored. But that takes thought. But that's it. You have to actually <laughs> analyze and think through stuff. But I no, want to just grab something off one the, the shelf and go. People will shout at me because I have a pair of $200 boots that were handmade in America. And I'm not saying like, oh, no, China. I'm just saying that, like, I don't mean that politically. I mean it as in they were made hand. They were handmade by people who were valued by their employers, who want to work there, and who have vacation days, who have paid sick leave, who who are cared for, rather than um, people in some sweatshop somewhere who are just cranking out, um, who are out cranking out things for less than a dollar a day. Um, kids who are slaving over things and getting hurt, and there's no sort of recourse for them. But we would rather look good because we spent two dollars on a T-shirt or ten dollars on a T-shirt. That was made with slave labor than $40 on a t-shirt that was made fairly. To make a political kind of joke, we've outsourced our morality. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, well, and, <laughs> no, but I mean, the, no, the, you're, the, I, the I agree. Point, the I point agree. I'm making, the, yeah, I mean, the point I'm, the point I'm making with that is, is simply, again, this kind of intellectual laziness. We be, and this is part of, again, the unforeseen consequences of terms creating their own realm and building theologies off of terms instead of texts. Yes. Right. And so what happens is now the secular and sacred, I think we think, well, shoes and clothes, that's secular. And because it's secular, I don't have to have any sort of Christian values filtering anything I do in that realm. Mm. Right. So, and by the way, that's, that's even more than products. Sometimes I see that among Christians, how we treat non-Christians. Oh, absolutely. Well, they're outside, they're dumb or they're lost or they're whatever else. So if I want to flip them off or treat them with disrespect or act like they're all Satan-worshipping heathen, right, you know, that's okay because there's, it's secular. So right, there are Whereas pastors the that treat me over like here, I'm a Satan-worshipping heathen. Right, right. I mean, you know, so we've, in a sense, outsourced our morality because this is what I'm saying again. It's, it's an imposed line between secular and sacred. When you go back even to its origins, right, Augustine, he didn't mean for it at all to be two different spheres of living. It was motivation. Yeah. Right. In other words, in other words, how why you do something is more important than what it is, right? Yeah. And then it will influence what the what is. Right. So what I'm choosing to do. So for example, what what I'm hearing you say when you're talking about I want shoes that are treating people fairly and that are actually helping get rid of slave labor and make the world a better place and whatever. You're trying to, in one sense, if I could put more of a kind of morality into it than maybe even you had in your mind when you were doing it, right? You're trying to bring glory to God and uplifting your fellow man in yeah. wisely using resources, whatever things like this. It, why? Because your motive, in, in a sense, from the original terms of these terms, what you're doing now becomes a sacred act versus a secular act of just me, 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 right? And, and by the way, again, and we don't like this because, again, it... it intellectual laziness, 
The flip side could also be true. You could be buying the $200 shoes for me, me, me. Without had, any of that morality in Without mind. any of that morality, right, which yeah. means it would, in a sense, become secular. Yep, I, exactly. It's all about your motive. Yeah, yeah it's about motive, which, which we don't like, but this is a real true rub of the gospel because we, we like all this external stuff. But even Paul said this is one of his biggest things. Or th- th- this freaked me out one day when this dawned on me. When I was reading in Romans and Paul's talking about, right, he's talking about, hey, you know, he goes, I was blameless according to the law, and then I read the commandment, thou shalt not covet, and sin revived within me, and I died. And I was like, wait a minute, why would reading another commandment bother him? I thought he was blameless to that. And then I realized coveting is the only commandment that you can't judge externally. It's dealing with motive, because mm-hmm. it happens inside of you. And it's almost like Paul was saying, hey, I was doing all this blameless-looking stuff on the outside, and then I realized my motive for doing it sucked, and then I realized all the good I was doing was actually sin. Mm. In other words, that sin could, you know, because I grew up very Southern Baptist and, and other conservative traditions, and this idea, you know, sin's the big focal point, and it's bad things you do are sin. And the day I realized that good stuff could be sin, if it was from the wrong mode, I was like, what? Like, like going to church could be sin. Absolutely. <laughs> right? You know, doing evangelism could be sin. Right? If, if my motive is I'm doing this so that I look good or that I can gain a better seat at the kingdom of heaven, you know, whatever— Right, right. Motive is so key. And again, it's intellectual laziness. We want something that's just clear. Black, white, throw it there. Yeah. And and don't let me have to think. And again, I think it's a misunderstanding about there's so many topics. There's so much about Christian living and, and the Bible narrative. They're all intertwined. They're not separate yeah. doctrines here, there, and whatever in this chain. It's all it all morphs together. These things all connect one another. And again, secular and sacred is coming out of a lot of different understandings about God and his intention for humanity to live, and et cetera. But, but we need to get back to this idea where secular and sacred is about motive, not about intrinsic value, mm. right? And when we, I mean, because these terms, again, I mean, because we separated these terms, it gets us into a lot more danger when we're reading text and something that seemingly deals with these self-made issues come up. So, for example, I'd like say talking again about motive, an- another cliche that kind of goes right along with this that we hear in the church a lot is, be in the world, but not of it, hmm. right? And by that definition, we're saying you're walking around in a sea, a, a, a sea of secularism and make sure you stay sacred, right? You know, kind of thing. And the problem is God never wanted us out of the world in that sense. When you look at the passage, again, in John 17, where Jesus uses that phrase, he says something very fascinating, right? Stopping down in verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And most Christians mm. stop right there and go, ah, ah, see, there's the, sec- the, the sacred that came down from above, and there's the secular, the world, etc. But then they don't go the next verse. He goes, I do not ask you, this is Jesus talking to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Right? In, in other words, In other words, he's like, I I don't want them gone, not creating culture or doing anything like that. I want them to not create evil culture, Mm. (laughs) right? I want them to be restoring, redeeming the world back to that Eden existence when things were good and pleasurable and awesome and fantastic and kind and, and, you know, and others seeking, et cetera. It's never been a matter of, ooh, destroy this or do that. God isn't. When I read the Bible, God is less interested in destroying than he is in creating, and that creating will repurpose and recreate and, and consume and subsume and hopefully redeem that which is around it, right? I mean, Paul even, 
it, it's funny. Paul even makes a statement later on, I believe, I'm trying to remember, I think it's to the church in Corinth, where he, make, where he makes a statement, he's like, I, I'm, you know, be, beware, he's talking about sending people, I think it's within the context of a, of a gentleman that's living in such a way that is not great. I believe he's having a relationship with his own mother, and it's just like, ew. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, there, yeah, there was no, depravity yeah. and stuff going yeah. on there. And he tells them to, like, get rid of them, you know, get kick him out, because that, that the church has to make a stand on what he's doing. And within this context, he, he makes a statement about, right, I'm not telling you not to go out and hang out with these other people to redeem them, because if I told you to to stay out of the world, right, if I told you to just stay away from people that weren't of us, you'd, you'd have to leave the world completely. Like, there's nowhere for you to go. In fact, I'm already listening right now. You should probably say something in a moment. I'm going to go get the right text here for a moment because <laughs> no, I'm, I think fine. I'm blurring two different stories and I'm like, wait, something doesn't sound right. There's no, a point fine. I'm trying to make and I need Paul to do it. So pick up on us for a second. I'm going to pull that up. Well, while you're pulling that up, I just hit my head on the top bunk. Um, while you're while you're pulling that up, I uh, am going to throw a wrench in this, a good wrench, that I don't think you expected me to pull up and, and bring up, which is this. Um, we've been talking about this a lot this week. It came up earlier because Henry in a Q&A uh, like, just completely stole the room with this. I think one of the greatest ways that the church is being forced right now to cultivate, it's going to be, it, it's kind of a cultivate or die sort of situation, um, is a certain, and he's going to, he's he, while he's scrolling through the text, he's going to know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this next word. Um, there's a certain epidemic currently happening, um, and Henry has coined a, uh, I think he calls them Henryisms. And <laughs> I think you called them. Uh, that. No, you literally said it to me the other night. Um, and, What's interesting to me is is the epidemic is the youth epidemic, the idea that, that youth are leaving the church, young adults are leaving the church. Um, and what's happening is the church, in response to that, is having to adapt its culture. And what we're seeing, what we've seen over the last uh, decade, 15, 20 years, actually, really, honestly, uh, 20, 30 years is, I, I keep going up in that value, but I would probably max it at 20, 30 years, is uh, this idea that we keep trying to copy culture because we see where the youth are going, and we say, okay, well, if we can bring a bit of that into here, uh, maybe they'll want to they'll want to stay here instead. And so we've we we've tried to copy culture a lot, um, and instead, um, what's happened is we've we've copied and failed to reappropriate in a way that's actually full of value and life and and positivity, um, and we just see it as a shallow kind of recreation or a shallow copycat um, that really doesn't have any worth to it. Um, and, and that's in our church culture. And, and Henry has put it a very specific way that I love when he describes the youth epidemic of the youth leaving the church. And Henry, I don't want to steal that from you, so I'd love for you um, <laughs> to share it so I can finish making this point. Yeah, the, the phrase I make is you get this a lot in ministry that people come up to you and go, youth are leaving the church. It's an epidemic. It's an epidemic. Youth are leaving the church. And I'll tell them, well, that's only 50% of the epidemic. And once they pause and look at me funny... And what are you talking about? And I said, well, the other 50% is that the adults have already left, but their bodies are still here. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that, that, when, he, when he answered that to a room full of 160 uh, high school kids, everyone just like freaked out. Um, they went nuts uh, because we hadn't thought of it that way. But, um, and one way that you expressed this to me the night as we talked about it further was that the youth are voting with their feet. In other words, adults and, and, and older generations have voted and said, fake it till you make it with church culture. Right, even if you don't like the service, sit through it. Sit through it anyway. We teach our kids sit through it anyway. Sit still. Be quiet. We teach them these these things. Um, we say even if you don't like it, there's no value for you. You still have to deal with it. And the youth is saying, no, I don't want any part of that culture. And until you cultivate something, 
we're going to cultivate something outside because kids are leaving church, but a lot of them are not leaving the sacred spaces. Yeah. They're, they're creating them. They're on their own because they're creating a culture and they're cultivating a culture of Christianity that's, that they want to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, well, and one but one of the sad things, this goes again to our topic that we could say here, one of the sad things is by youth also leaving, they're eliminating the possibility of consuming the culture of church as it is. Because yeah. remember, the only way you get new culture is creating more of it. Well, if they go out of the church and create it somewhere else, they're not actually obliterating the culture that's there now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's so there's it's, definitely, it. it's yeah. definitely kind of a, a – it, it, there's two sides to that coin, definitely. But I do find it interesting that, that now, that because youth are choosing to vote with their feet, the church is now having to, to choose, do we just copy, which they've been trying to do for 30 years? Right. And in some cases, it's worked. There's been some places where it's worked very well. Or do we cultivate and actually create, um, does it look like a new liturgy? What does it look? And, and, and we're kind of in this, my, this generation of pastors is now trying to look at this um, from the stance of um, sexual identity, gender identity, and all these different things. What does that culture look like, and and how are we going to cultivate and create a culture in our church that encompasses all of these different facets of what it means to be a human in Western culture in America um, in 2018, in 2020, in 2030? Um, we're having to really think and sit down and, and decide what are we going to do. And there's a lot of people that are just holding on. They're critiquing and condemning what is being cultivated. Because they don't want to have to engage with Bingo. it. And they're holding yeah. on to whatever, and they're like, we're the last bastions of true Adventism. We're the last bastions of true Because we have to stay out Baptists of the world. And, and, true, yeah. and, and praise be, I found the verse before everyone thinks I've absolutely lost my mind and was making something up. It is in 1 <laughs> Corinthians 5. You know, it's one of those things I have to get off my brain yeah. or I'm going to go crazy. And Paul actually says this point right here in verse 9 and 10. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. We'd say the secular, right? And he goes, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. (laughs) But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. Right? So in other words, he's like, I didn't tell you to go out of the... If I told you not to associate with any of those people, you'd have to leave the planet because everybody's a sinner and jacked up and you're toast. He goes, I told you not to associate with people that claim to be Christians and live in a certain way. Yeah, that's just, yeah. That's <laughs> you the know? way the Paul's Paul like has these clapbacks at people, <laughs> yes. and it, and it's weird because we don't see his clapbacks because we only see his side of the conversation. Yeah, but like it's just incredible the one liners and the zingers that he has. And that's that's crazy. But he, I mean, I I've read that verse several times, and maybe it's just kind of sinking in that way now. But yeah, absolutely. Like, there's no escaping. There's there's absolutely yeah. no escaping. You, you have to engage with culture. The question again comes back to. Is the church going to have a correct theological understanding that allows us to cultivate and create? Or are we going to be stuck in that repeating cycle of consume, copy, critique, and condemn? And I would, I would actually argue that the refusal to engage in culture is a culture in and of itself. In other words, no matter what, you are engaging. Yeah, you're creating culture. You are creating something. Yeah, it may be are... one that now the world can laugh. Well, the world loosely now using more terms, but. Where other <laughs> humans around us can laugh at us in society and go, yeah. well, they're narrow-minded and stubborn and stupid and lack of science or whatever. And, and again, I'm not saying there's not certain nuances within there that we, from a scriptural perspective, need to you know to wrestle with. But again, that's going to take getting intellectual laziness and creating the appropriate culture. Then, yeah, right. You Absolutely. know, uh, th- this is one thing 
bringing it back to music, since everyone loves to talk about that. That's one thing that always gets me. Our church, you know, a lot of churches, not just ours, but churches will fight over music genres or something else. And they'll be like, well, I don't like modern praise music, or I don't like whatever else like that. And I'll tell them, and, you know, if you spent half as much time funding the creation of new music you think is appropriate instead of fighting over the stuff that, like, I'm a firm believer right now, and I've done this a lot, and I'm just, not that I'm some, you know, I'm great, but I'm trying to let the Lord work my life in here. Um, I am on a lot of crowdfunding websites, and I am specifically funding in our case, Adventist young people that are creating music, even if it's genres that I don't like personally. Mm. I have funded CDs and EPs and stuff like that of music I don't even listen to because it's some Adventist young person that says, I don't want to just sit here and condemn yeah. or critique or copy or consume. I want to create right music that is in, that is basically responding to my understanding of God and what he's called us in the world, and an Adventist understanding of, of, of Scripture. And I'll go, man, I'm going to throw money at that. Uh, there's hmm. probably about four projects I've funded. I haven't even listened to the music because it just didn't interest me. But I said, I can't sit here and talk about creating culture if I, if I don't put my money where my mouth is. And so literally. I'm just throwing, <laughs> literally, yeah, yeah, literally. So I'm throwing, you know, I, I put money at it as I can. And, and that's my point. We've got, the only way you get new culture is you create it. Right, we we have to cultivate instead of just sitting there and going, well, that praise music is not deep, and they and they're talking about hell too much, or they don't have a right. Well, then write new stuff. Yeah, write better stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, go do something. You yeah, know, I, I agree. mean, that's Absolutely. the only way we're going to change it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Henry, we are kind of at our the end of our time. Um, so, but before we do, I just want to ask you. I want to give you the, this chance here. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything you want to? leave listeners with before we close out? Well, one of my favorite phrases, and to again, you know, incriminate myself, because this is this is a whole lot of fun when you're <laughs> when you're in here getting to do a podcast like this, is Ephesians, and one of my, my I have an absolute man crush on a guy named N.T. Wright. I mean, this guy... Oh, I don't know who that is, some unknown guy, I guess. Yeah, yeah he's an Anglican priest and, and, and teacher. <laughs> I love the guy to death. I, I, you know, if I wanted to be selfish and ignorant, I'd be like, he's going to make a good pre-Adventist one day. Uh, but I think God can work with you wherever you're at. <laughs> and, and and maybe our church isn't ready for him. I'm not quite certain if, oh, I, true, if I'm honest yeah. with myself. But I, I love this guy. You know, I like to say, eat the watermelon, spit out the seed. He's got a few seeds somewhere, but I mean, so do I. So, you know, just enjoy the meal. And, and he gave a talk some time ago, and he was talking on Ephesians. Ephesians is a book that he's just extremely qualified to talk about. And and he made a he was talking about Ephesians 2 and verse 10 where he says we are God's workmanship, right? And he was getting into the Greek where he's like that word is really poema, right? Or God's poem. And this idea that God has called us to this kind of creativity to to making music in the world and wow. in the universe. And and the point he was making there is he was talking about what Christians should be about in this world. And he says, you've been called to be an artwork, to be a masterpiece, to be a poema, to be a poem, right, for the world. And so he was talking about, he said, listen, when he counsels with people in his parish, when they're like, you know, this could have been a question. I should have said this earlier in our Q&A with the kids earlier today when a question came up about how do I know God's will for our life. And, And he counsels them, and this counsel that he gives them is something that I've tried to now, you know, I guess in a sense break my own rule and just copy and then kind of kind of deal with. But he says, he asked them, what are you uniquely gifted and qualified to do? And it could be 20 different things. 
And there could be 20 other people that have the same things. And he goes, when you look at that, what is the one thing? What is the one thing that at this moment, it seems you are the only one around capable of doing? And he says, whatever that thing is, and it might take the sacrifice of 10 other things you're good at. What is that one thing that you seem to be the only one around you in your church, in your family, in your community, in your college? In your what? what is the one thing God has gifted you that you seem to be the only one at this moment capable of doing and do that thing to the glory of God? Hmm. Right? Do that thing to the glory of God. Make your artwork, make your poem for the globe. And when all of those poems unite into this rich tapestry, this rich tapestry of grace, this rich tapestry of the gospel, um, it's really creating that new culture, and that we do know from Scripture, if you're if you're a believer in the scriptural narrative, that that culture really is going to consume, in a sense mm. of you know, consume it like eat it, right? It will eat it up and take over this planet. The last great scene of the Bible is that a new culture takes back over this planet. The Eden culture, that culture of cultivation and creativity, will reign again on this planet. And so my encouragement would be when we get into the secular and sacred, again, remember, secular or sacred is your motive. Where it originated was the question of why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing something to make the world a better place, to serve man, to love your neighbor as yourself, and to bring glory to God? Are you doing it for me, 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 even in the name of religion? And depending on that question, you can be doing things that are supposedly in the name of God and be just as, quote, secular as an atheist because if your motivation is about yourself, whether you do it in the name of religion or in the name of science or in the name of I don't care, <laughs> right? <laughs> that is what, right, when these terms created would be secular living. Whereas the sacred, right, is people going, whatever I do, I'm going to do all things to the glory of God, right? And in fact, that was one of the things that made the Reformation, remember, these terms got really going in the medieval ages, the dark ages. One of the things that made the Reformation so transformational for Europe was the fact that this idea of the priesthood of all believers and that whether you're a janitor or a monk, right, or a priest or a teacher or an army captain or a soldier or right, a, a street sweeper or whatever, that whatever you were doing, you could uniquely do that to the glory of God and the betterment of humanity around you. And the productivity of Europe's economy blew up. Yeah. Right? Because people are like, we can turn the world upside down. And I would just argue, I, I don't want the listeners to go turn the world upside down. I want them to turn it right side up because we're already upside down. And if we can create that kind of gospel-centered right, culture, when enough of us start living that, I believe, right, then the rest of the world is going to look to copy and, and consume Right, and critique and condemn. We're going to get a lot more critique and a lot of condemning because that always happens with any new culture no, creation. To be honest, most of that will probably come from inside, not well, outside. Well, and, and that's true. It's inevitable wherever it comes from, right? But here's the thing. There will be all, the majority of humans that would just consume it. And what would happen if the whole world started consuming a radically awesome gospel-infused culture? Yeah. I, I, think, I, think, I think we'd be somewhere else. We'd probably yeah. be on an Earth remade. Man, uh, I know we're recording this on a Saturday, and I, that was just church. <laughs> oh, Amen. that was just church. No, Henry, thank you so much, man, for coming on. This was an awesome, awesome conversation, and, I, and it kind of feels like we're just getting started. I know, I, I know. Um, but unfortunately, we have to go. We have another meeting we've got to get to here in three minutes, um, and it's a 10-minute <laughs> walk, so we're gonna. this is going to go well for us. But uh, So thank you again, Henry, for coming on. For our listeners, um, Henry is going to definitely be on again. Uh, I am going to just 
unilaterally make that executive decision, um, whether he likes it or not. But if you want to follow us on iTunes, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, any podcatching app. You can just look up Absurdity with Ryan Becker. You can look up my name or just Absurdity. I'm actually like the first one that comes up even on Google. It's weird being the top result on Google. That's just a strange place to be. Um, but Absurdity or theabsurdity.org, and you can follow me on Twitter at Ryan180Becker. That is how you can connect with me if you have any feedback, suggestions, comments for the show, uh, or email me at Ryan180Becker at gmail. Dot com. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you want to become a patron, um, we do have in the next couple months a few Patreon-specific episodes. So for any donation level, a dollar, $2 a month, $5 a month, whatever you donate, you will have access to special Patreon-only episodes that are coming out, as well as merchant Absurdity merchandise that is now available as well. So uh, patreon.com slash absurditypodcast. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Today's episode of Absurdity is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to www.thehaystack.org. The Haystack. Life. Culture. Theology.